Are you guys ready? Good. It's Big Sunday, so we have the children in here with us, so welcome. Take good notes. There's some sheets in the back table if you guys want to uh, take notes. Looks like most of you are already doing that. And then you can take your note page to the treasure box, and somebody certainly will be there. Could could be me, could be somebody else, but certainly there'll be somebody be there to review your notes. And just so the parents and everybody else knows, I think whoever's manning the, the box does a pretty good job of just not just going, oh, nice job, here you go. What did you learn? Tell me about why you wrote down what you wrote down about what you heard. So there's active participation from everybody in the room, and I love that. So, okay. Today, we begin a new journey, and we finished up last week working through First and Second Thessalonians. Now, as Mike previewed last week, we are in a series called A Living Hope. And how appropriate that we lit this candle and we heard what we heard today, because a lot of that is going to tie into our first week. And so, believe it or not, um, let me just start with this. Let's throw out some numbers here. How many Old Testament prophecies do you think there are about Jesus in the Old Testament? Give me a couple of uh, numbers. It's more than ten. What is it? Sixty. Sixty. Higher. Seven hundred. Lower. Lower. <laughs> okay. Getting closer. 300 something. Yes, thank you. Around 300 as uh, scholars believe. And these prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling all of them is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Just even a handful of them. Astonishingly improbable, if not impossible. And so... This guy named uh, Peter Stoner was the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College, who was really passionate about Bible prophecies. And so he took a bunch of people from InterVarsity, a bunch of students, 600 students, and they looked at eight specific prophecies. So of the 300, they looked at only eight specific prophecies. And they came up with what he calls extremely conservative probabilities that the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all eight of those prophecies. And the conclusion of his research was staggering. The prospect that anyone would satisfy these eight prophecies was one in ten to the 17th power. So if you don't know anything about math like me, he describes it like this. Let's visualize this chance. If you mark one of ten tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is? One in ten. One in ten. Very good. I can do that one. Now suppose we take uh, ten to the seventeenth power worth of silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas across the entire state. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. You ever driven across Texas? Two feet deep worth of silver dollars. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly over all the state. Then blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say, this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. Now, why do I start with this illustration? 
simply to communicate how the prophecies recorded in the Old Testament are in a worldly sense improbable and outlandish. But in a godly sense, they are reliable and trustworthy. Dozens and dozens of prophetic promises are contained in the Bible to give us hope, to give humanity hope. They're to demonstrate that God's sovereignty, his control over all things, and his faithfulness to his promises are real. If you didn't know, or if you do know, and as a reminder, God exists outside of time. Right? He's not, he's not restricted as we are. He sees the beginning and the end at the same time. He knows everything. This is the God that we have the privilege of knowing. That's an amazing thing, right? I love that. Now, many of us, admittedly, have probably not spent a lot of time studying the prophecy of the Old Testament. Right? When's the last time you did a real deep dive into Ezekiel? It's been a while, or maybe never. Right? And I think one of the reasons is because prophetic writing can be really difficult to understand. You're reading this and going, what are you talking about? This seems like craziness, and I totally understand that. But there is a deep value in the process of looking into the Old Testament promises of God and doing some discovery. So we're going to help ourselves out a little bit. First, we're going to call these the promises of God. Prophetic utterances, prophetic words, we're going to label them as prophetic promises. And I get that defined this way from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. It says, promises of God, God's announcement of his plan of salvation and blessing to his people, one of the unifying themes integrating the message of the deeds of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Simply, God's revealing his plan in advance and seeing it take place. The prophetic promises of God. Now we have a lot of examples that we can and will examine, but just kind of demystify the whole approach. We can do this. We can do it collectively, I promise. Um, So just laying that brief foundation, because our series over the next couple of weeks is going to incorporate a lot of these prophetic promises and incorporate these concepts. So today we're looking at the promises of his coming. That is his birth. Lots of prophetic utterances, words written down about his birth. Next week, Mike's going to come and he is going to preach on the reality of those promises coming to pass. So the Christmas story, essentially. Today, talking about the promises. Next week, the reality of those promises. The week after that, we're talking about the promises of his coming, part two, which would anticipate what? The second coming, his return, absolutely. And then it's going to culminate on Christmas Eve where we're going to explore the reality again of his glorious return. Not in the sense of the how and the when. We touched on that in Thessalonians and we got a little bit deep into some of the weeds. We're not talking about that. We're talking about what he's bringing to completion and what it will look like when he does come again. Setting up his kingdom here and reigning in eternity So it's kind of this whole beautiful picture, I think, um, of what our hope is in and allowing the reality of his first and second coming to shape what we do today. What we do today should be uh, somewhat shaped by the fact that he came, he promised he came, then he came, now he's promised he's coming again and he will come again. So 
That's the next couple of weeks. You kind of have a, a mental image or picture of where we're going on all this. Okay, well, I, try, I, I tried. I tried. I'm going to pray right now that we have a mental image of where we're going and that our, our, our hearts and minds will be open to this. So let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much, God, that you give us so much hope in your word, in your promises that guarantee that you would come, take on human flesh, be born into this world. We see the reality of that promise in the story of the Gospels. God, the weight of that taking place and what that means for us in forgiveness and reconciliation and freedom. And God, we also see the promises of your soon coming return and what that looks like for us whose faith and hope is in you. God, would you just remind us this morning that you are a good and faithful God that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are not a man that you should lie or change your mind. What you said will come to pass. And we hang our hope and our faith in you. We ask for your, your help now this morning. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now do you have the picture? I didn't pray for it. I should have, but no. You're good. I, I, you're tracking with me. I know it. Okay, so if you have any questions this morning, you can text those to that number. Um, it'll just be me today. Mike is on the road traveling. Um, he sends his regards. But please interact with, with me and the group through text in that way. A living hope. So I mentioned early on in, in what I was saying to you that one of the reasons we have these prophetic promises is to give us hope. And I hope that you have hope in what these things outline for us. Um, the hope, certainly for the Jews, right, who were promised the Messiah, they would study these things out, memorize them, know that there was a coming Messiah. And, of course, in the time of the New Testament, we have the story of their oppression and being just kind of, um, yeah, ruled and governed by the Romans. And they were desperate for the hope of the Messiah that was promised to them. But that hope is not limited to them. It's for all of humanity as we see God's story unfolding just as he said it would. Doesn't that do your heart good to know that what God said is actually happening? Man, that's a beautiful thing. But I think we should answer the question, what exactly is hope and why can we have it? Because like other concepts in the Bible, hope can be misunderstood based on our English usage of the word. Because I hope that the 49ers win this afternoon. I'm fairly confident that they will. But there's no guarantee of that outcome based on my desire. Right? I don't know the future. Despite my desperate longing to see this happen. It's uncertain. It's unknown. That's not the kind of hope that we see in the Bible. As Piper states, he says, in a biblical sense... Hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather, biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. 
Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it. It not only expects it to happen, it is confident it will happen. See the difference? And that's not rooted in anything that I'm doing. Like, I can have a confident expectation that they're going to win this afternoon, but that's rooted in nothing. I can have a confident expectation in God's faithfulness because I've seen it time and time again. And so hope and faith are actually two aspects of the same equation. Let's look at Hebrews 11.1. This is a familiar text for a lot of you, I bet. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How many of you know that verse? Okay. Two words used in there. Both faith and hope are used to describe this very important biblical idea. So someone... I think helpfully clarified by saying this, because a lot of people ask, well, what's the difference between faith and hope? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What's the difference between faith? They're both in that description. So what's the difference? He said this, I would suggest that faith, faith is the larger idea and hope is a necessary part of biblical faith. Hope is the part of faith that often focuses on the future. In biblical terms, when faith is directed to the future, you can call it hope. But faith can focus on the past and the present, too. So faith is the larger term. You can see this in Hebrews 11.1. 1. This is the closest thing we have to a definition of faith in all the New Testament. I think that's helpful to kind of determine what these things are, are referred to as in the Scripture. But hopefully you get the larger picture regarding hope. It's a confident expectation that God will do what he promised he'd do. But let's back up in Hebrews so that we can see why we can have such a hope in the first place. So let's go back into Hebrews chapter 10, and let's start at verse 19. This is the reason for our hope. Hebrews 10. Is that in there? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is Faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he promises faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And he goes on and on and on. We have a confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ that produces faith for what? For the forgiveness of sins, the washing of the old into the new. It's an assurance of salvation. And so I have faith, hopefully you have faith, that Jesus accomplished for you and for me, on the cross, the forgiveness of sins. And our hope is in the future promise that we will be with him in paradise forever. So we have a faith in what he accomplished, and we have a hope in what will be in the life to come. Let me wrap up this section before we look at some specific promises by saying this. The best way to understand hope is to think of a time when you had no hope at all. Have you ever felt hopeless? 
It's perhaps the worst, awful, gut-wrenching feeling you will ever feel in your life. Hopelessness is awful. And God knows that about us. And so he gives us hope through his promises fulfilled in his word and provides those for us who love him. Does that all make sense? Again, probably not telling you anything you don't know, but this is more of a reminder. And I wanted to spend a majority of our time doing just that, reminding us of this incredible gift called hope and then establish the reasons why we can have a hope in the first place because it brings us comfort in this life. So what of those promises? Let's think specifically about the places in the scriptures that speak about specific parts of Jesus' first coming. So think now, engage your brain. Old Testament prophecies that talked about specific things describing Jesus' birth. What comes to mind? Where is he going to be born? Okay, what else? Through who he's going to be born. Hmm? Who going to be born. What was that in the back? Same thing? What she said? He's a prince of peace? Okay. Virgin birth. Okay, now we're getting there. Hmm. Is Rita Jesse? Jesse, David. Yeah. Tribe of Judah. We could go on and on and on because apparently there's hundreds of these. If you just look back at the Old Testament, we'll find them. Maybe one of the things that comes quickly to your mind that was spoken over here in this general area of the Red Shirt Club is that the Messiah, that is Jesus, would be born of a virgin. It was an Old Testament prophecy. How do I know? For the Bible tells me so. In Isaiah 7, 14, put that one up. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold... The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Hundreds of years before this taking place, here's the prophet saying, thus says the Lord, this will happen. Mary receives the same prophecy. Look at Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a man and unwilling to put her to shame, a just man, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's a very clear example of a promise and its fulfillment. Simple, right? Easy. You get where I'm going with this? How about this? Somebody said location. I heard where he would be born. He would be born in Bethlehem. Was that prophesied? Yes. Let's verify. Math, 
Micah 5.2. Look at Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, this sounds familiar, Pathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Ben read that earlier. We have the fulfillment in Matthew 2.1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there it is, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from east came to Jerusalem. Simple, yet accurate. I'm building a case here. Go with me. You're like, yeah, this is basic. I'm with you. Let's get a little more specific, shall we? A star would point the way toward Christ. Numbers 24:17. I see him. But not now, and behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Shem. See, this is where it starts to get crazy because you're like, what's all that other stuff in there? Don't worry about that. Okay? Just pick out what stands out in terms of the promise that we're talking about here. Let's go to read the fulfillment in Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Again, basic, simple, but a promise, a prediction, if you will, a prophetic word given, a fulfillment. Let's talk time frame and surrounding events. Hold on now. It's going to get a little sideways here with us. We're going to Daniel chapter 9. Now therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And you're like, what is happening? Go with me here. Herod is known to have died in 4 BC. It's presumed then that Jesus was born before that between 6 and 4 A.D., and that his death occurred somewhere between uh, 29 and 33 A.D. And before his death on the cross, Jesus had also told of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. That's what this text describes, to confirm the prophecy of Daniel. This also establishes a time when we know the temple was destroyed. Who knows what year the temple was destroyed the second time? What was it? 70 A.D. 70 A.D., historical fact that Jerusalem temple is destroyed. We've got this to establish some framework of time to, to put this into package. And if you look at all these weeks and months and things, like there's some calculation. We're not going to get into that. But we have to work a little bit to see the fulfillment of these events. But let's make sure we do. Go back to Matthew 2.1. This is the third time we've been in Matthew 2.1. But it tells us now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod establishes time frame. Okay, so we know it's at this time that he was born. Let's go to 1 Peter 2.24. 1 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This speaks of what he was talking about in Daniel and what he was going to accomplish. And then Matthew 24, 2. And he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will be thrown down. It's talking about the actual physical structure of the temple being destroyed, being brought down to nothing. So I can see that your eyes are starting to glaze over already, which is my point of why we don't study this stuff in the first place. Because the first three are like, yeah, I got this. This is easy. Let's start reading prophecy, man. And then we go to Daniel and these things, and you're like smoke and all kinds of things happening, and we just kind of tune out. Nevertheless, the Bible is full of prophetic promises from God to his people about his plan for salvation. So we can have hope because we see that God is true to what he promises. He's going to bring it to pass. We gave a few examples in that. This is the foundation that we can have for biblical hope. Even if we don't fully understand some of these references, there's enough there to hold on to. Okay, I can grab this. I can grab that. Grab on to what you can grab on to, and as God reveals more and more to you, you begin to understand the deeper things of God, then you can hold on to more and more. And that's the beauty of pursuing Christ and his word is that you begin to understand more, and he reveals more of that truth to us. Biblical hope not only desires something good in the future, it expects it to happen. It not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. So, we can have hope in what he promised. But we can also have hope in what God promises will come as a result of the Messiah being born, as he stated. So all that is just hope in the fact that Jesus is coming. He's going to be born. Have hope in that. But I'm going to ease into Mike's territory a little bit for next week, because I think it's necessary for us also to have hope in what this means for us. So I'm going I'm to give you two more reasons for hope, and then I'm going to wrap it up. We're going all the way back to the garden. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who's God talking to in this? Talking to the serpent, who is Satan. We're talking, God is directing these words at Satan. He said, I'm going to put envy between you and the woman, her offspring, who is Jesus. Jesus. This is symbolic of generations now separated, but you can trace it all back. And he's going to bruise your head. Mortally wound you, essentially, is what he's saying. You are going to die. You're, you're going to come to an end. This will not happen. And it's going to come at the hands of who? Jesus Christ. This is all the way at the very, 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 very beginning. God is saying this will happen. Let's go all the way to the very end of the Bible into 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works 
of the devil. We can have a confident hope that what was promised in the garden took place. I promise you, the Bible promises you, I affirm what the Bible teaches you and us that the enemy has been mortally wounded. Right? Satan is on his way down. It may not feel like that when you look around the world. But he has been mortally wounded and he is on a path to destruction and lake of fire and all that stuff. But what happens when the boat is sinking and things are going wrong? You try to take as many people down with you as you can, right? Like, and that's what's happening. <laughs> you see, he knows his end, his fate, his destruction. And so he is doing all he can to bring as many down with him. And yet we see here the reason that the Son of Man, Son of God, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what we see accomplished on the cross. Destroyed sin and death. Complete, fulfilled in Christ. You can have hope in that. And I, and I pray that you do. Pray that you do. One more. Isaiah 61.1. Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is a beautiful prophetic word here that also we're going to read about in Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus now. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and, was his, and as was his custom, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This may sound familiar. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing beautiful depiction of this in the Chosen series. If you ever watched that, it's very powerful. This is what our hope is in. Jesus has set us free from the grip of sin. You're free from that. He's set us free from the grip of death. Death has no power or dominion over us. Yes, we will end our life here on this earth. But as we've said before, death is merely the doorway to an eternity with Christ. He has set us apart for him in this life and in the life to come. That's the promise that we have in Christ. And all of it was foretold hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, which is the kickoff event. That's why we, we put so much emphasis on Advent and what this means for us as we anticipate celebrating the birth of Christ, which is the affirmation of all those promises to build our hope. But what I think is going to be really special about this series is that we're going beyond that. A lot of times we, the, the kind of the finish line is the birth, 
We're kind of starting at the birth. <laughs> and then we're looking forward to what the birth actually means for us for the, the rest of eternity, which is a beautiful, wonderful picture. And so I, I hope as you go with us on this journey, you'll take time to look to the promises of God. Look to the prophetic words written that are, have already been fulfilled. I'd encourage you to do a study in that. What are some of the promises and how have they been fulfilled? And then what are some of the promises to come and anticipate with hope and expectation that they will come to pass? So I'm going to end there. Mike's going to come next week and give us the reality of these coming to pass. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for, God, just your faithfulness. I think the scripture that comes to my mind often in this regard is Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? And has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Lord, this is who you are. Unchanging, faithful, trustworthy. We sing a song often, Lord, to you called Anchor of Hope. God, we must be anchored to you, tethered to you to hold us as the winds and storms of this life want to blow us all over the place. And they will if we are not fully anchored to you. God, our eyes fixed on you, our minds and hearts reminded often because of our time spent pursuing you, loving you, sharing you, gives us what we need to continue to walk in faithful obedience to what you've called us to. It's not blind hope. It's a hope rooted and grounded in a God who is absolutely perfect and unchanging. Who's brought for us new life, forgiveness, redemption, and a promise of eternity with him. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you for your promises. Let it wash over us from the tops of our heads to the soles of our feet. And let us walk from here assured and confident of who we are in you. We need your help. We ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen.